coming up on Life is a Festival. I've told this story 10 gajillion times now, and it did have a lot to do with my first experiences with psychedelics. It's, it's, it's exactly that metaphor of like moving from the swimming pool and going to the hot tub and then being like, I was in a swimming pool. Did you know that there's temperature also? Like that comparison, all of a sudden I had contrast. I got outside of that norm and like the closest thing I could come to being like, I've never been you. I don't know what it looks like to be you. I don't even know what your color red looks like. I don't know anything. But like to step into that for a moment is an opportunity in the same way traveling to another country is like, oh, our culture has really particular things. Like there is no normal. Like, but I had that in like a more, I didn't physically go anywhere. I just was transported to like a different seat in this sort of like auditorium of like perception. And so I got to understand what the seat that I was sitting in before. And that was with psychedelics. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. I am your host, as always, Eamon Armstrong. And today on the show, I am so honored to introduce you to Aaron Orsini. Aaron is the co-founder of the Autistic Psychedelic Community, and he has been experimenting with psychedelics as a way of better understanding his autism for many years. On the program, we discuss autism as a neurological diagnosis and also as a cultural label. We talk about LSD and Aaron's experiences experimenting with socialization with the assistance of various doses of the psychedelic. We talk about healing trauma and ultimately building community, which is, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of this particular conversation, the challenges of socialization, then blossoming into the wise stewardship of a vibrant community. It's quite the magical journey, and I'm excited to share it with you today. So Aaron is the author of Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions, he is also the editor of the just-released neurodiversity-minded anthology of psychedelic essays called Autistic Psychedelic, which we'll talk about on the show. He is the, as I've mentioned, co-founder of that community, which meets on Sundays to have conversations and offer mutual support to those neurodivergent individuals who are exploring the use of psychedelics. And now I offer you this rich and inspiring conversation with Aaron Orsini. Aaron, welcome to Life is a Festival. It's thrilling to have you on this show after already having the honor of interviewing you once for the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. And now we get to a deep dive on you, your journey, and the skills and tools that you've developed both in your relationship to your own neurodiversity and the communities that you serve. And so I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you again and to get to help open source some of what you've learned and what you share. 
Yeah, for sure. It's a really uh, special opportunity to, you know, really explore uh, a new kind of side of uh, some of this in some ways. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. And just right out the gate, Autistic Psychedelic is coming out on May 1st. And so we'll be talking about that throughout the conversation. So this is a promotional podcast for the Autistic Psychedelic book and supporting the Autistic Psychedelic community. So we'll be talking a lot about that on the show. And I just wanted to out the gate, clue our listeners into the fact that part of this conversation is to let people know about this forthcoming book, which really showcases voices within the broader neurodivergent community who've, like yourself, used psychedelics as a way to better understand themselves and to move more easily through the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to further kind of bring transparency into it, I mean, the nature of creating this book, it's more than 40 people have contributed to it, either as answering a questionnaire or writing an essay. And all of those people generously also contributed to this book on the grounds that the revenue from this book were going to go to forwarding these peer support and community efforts ongoing. So I would be remiss if I didn't thank each and every one of those persons for donating their time to make this perspective and such a, a wide and diverse perspective come to light. And it's just something that I'm so excited to have and to share with, with so many people. So, And these are self-reported benefits as well as challenges from various psychedelics as told by neurodivergent adults navigating various... Um, what is the... What is the way that you most like to refer to your challenges as a neurodivergent person? What's the framing for that? Cool. So I'd be happy to talk about this. And this is something that we talk about endlessly in our group spaces. And if you'll uh, forgive me here, I'll probably go into like a five minute TED talk about like language and identification, but I believe I'm quite concise at this point with it. So bear with me for a second. And I'll, and I'll split it into two parts. The first is just kind of making a delineation between identification within neurodivergent spaces. And the first thing that's kind of critical to point out is one of the most mistermed kind of usages is that there's neurodiversity, which refers to like the biodiversity of brains, essentially, like their brains are different. So like no one person has neurodiversity in the same way that one person does not possess diversity as an individual. So one person can be neurodivergent, they can possess neurodivergence. Those are just kind of like very particular kind of language choices, just to kind of dig into that real fast. But when I say delineate, it's really important that although we might have something of, say, like a choice of personal self-identification, that also has to cross through this other meshing, which is how these diagnoses will impact things like benefits or you know access to workplace accommodations, things like this. So there is within our group space, when we go around and I do, we do our introductions at our groups, we'll give people the opportunity to, you know, disclose if they'd like or to self-identify. And people will identify with anything from like, I identify as autistic or I identify as neurodivergent. Or there's even somewhat of a controversy in that some decades ago, there was a push away from identifying persons with their particular uh, disorder or condition, whatever it might be. So in a same parallel, to say the deaf community, uh, there was sort of a reclaiming of the identity associated with the condition. And rather than trying to cushion themselves against uh, this sort of stigma, they proudly sort of reclaim that identity in that same way. And I think that's been a recent push within the autism community.
community as well. So many people like, and there's like surveys supporting this will say that they prefer to be referred to as autistic as opposed to person with autism. And again, I think that just has to do with how much a lot of these kind of uh, what I like to refer to as like a personal variation in sensory processing really shapes someone's identity so strongly that people tend to feel that way. And that also parallels something that's really central and good to get out, out of the way right away, which is that the purpose of this group and this broader movement that I feel I'm a part of, which would be referred to as like the neurodiversity movement or perhaps the neurodiversity paradigm, also sees these kind of variations in processing or intelligence as, you know, things that could be benefited to the broader culture at large. So in that same way, no one's trying to, you know, cure autism or a race identity of an autistic person in that same regard. And all my experiences and all of these explorations we'll be talking about all throughout today were an effort to manage, you know, those sensory variations and just being able to, in the same way, again, someone who might have a certain kind of impairment, say with the hearing, to be able to modulate that in, in a certain context in order to create a more, you know, easier navigation of a given circumstance. So that's the end of my five minutes head talk. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that clarification out the gate. And I really invite you to, throughout our conversation, to educate me as to the proper way to talk about this sort of thing. Because not only is it kind and supportive to use the appropriate language, but it actually helps us evolve our deeper understanding and create a more inclusive society. So you'll be teaching us all along the way, and I very much welcome you teaching me. And from what you've just said, one thing that kind of pops to mind first is you talked about reclaiming a label associated with a disorder or, or that had initially been associated with a disorder. I'm curious, how do you identify now and how has your identification evolved throughout your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say, uh, you know, for simplicity's sake, for the sake of kind of solidarity with what might be seen as like a marginal sort of neurotype group, I would immediately sort of say I, I readily identify as autistic, just simply. Again, that's almost just for convenience. If I had, you know, if it was me in 20 years from now, I'd like to be identified as yet another variation in like processing on the planet, just like every other person. But for the time being, it like makes sense to, you know, kind of be in that in-group and to remain there and to, you know, sort of discover as we're discovering over and over and over through our group that the line is perhaps, you know, gray or ambiguous, what separates a neurodivergent person from a neurotypical person. I mean, again, this goes back to the idea that typicality in a, you know, kind of uh, casual sense, you know, is more culturally held, but that typicality also has like metrics that can define it in a medical model. So like at a certain number of points on a certain scale of a questionnaire, you are assuredly in that diagnostic category. And so that's where those like attitudes towards, I feel identified with this group might be uh, taken away or given to an individual based on those specific standards uh, of scale. So Again, I identify as autistic. I've been diagnosed as autistic. I was also diagnosed ADHD when I was younger. That's a high comorbidity in the same population. And similarly, both of those have disorder at the end. And in the same way, I have certain circumstances that are especially challenging for me. 
Um, and if I place myself into almost like an opposite kind of circumstance, that sort of disorderly nature becomes somewhat of like a very sharp and pointed edge of a strength that I can apply and make use of. We, we made the example when I was interviewing you last, like the sort of the intensity of sensory information that comes to me through audio can be leveraged in especially quiet environments for audio mixing or music production, things like that. So again, it's you know, and me being in school, part of that ADHD diagnosis and all of that was that being in a classroom setting, lots of lights, lots of children, lots of stuff happening. I had a different learning style. I learned visually much more readily. I would just sort of like learn on the blackboard inside my head while the teacher was lecturing. So it looked like I wasn't paying attention. But in fact, I was like completely memorizing and like knowing every single thing like in a flash. And so I would get like straight A's, but then the teacher would be like, Aaron is disruptive. He never seems to do anything other than doodle. And I'd be like, but I get straight A's. I don't understand. So again, it's, you know, I'm disorderly in a certain context and set of expectations that's culturally held based on these more methods that move towards standardization as opposed to diversification. And we can get into that more broadly. But yeah, that's how I identify, which is also overly verbose, but that's also how I identify as well. <laughs> I love I love your verbosity, actually. That's I'm I'm a, I'm a word guy as well. And both in your writing and in our first interview and today, I love the way that you frame things. It's definitely a superpower. And I think that that's part of why you are in a leadership role within this community, because you have a really special way of articulating with precision and also a lot of warmth these kinds of delineations that really matter. And you're, I feel that you're able to express them in a way, like I say, it's precise and it's also inviting too. So it's not cold. It doesn't feel like a cold precision. And yet it's also like very clean and precise. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, uh, I appreciate that. And it's yet one more thing that's born from, you know, again, I tended in my younger years and still today, I tended to live more inside that visual spatial thinking world. And so a lot of my sort of strength as a communicator comes from, uh, I think I use this exact analogy, maybe on the podcast, but like I'm constantly like rebuilding ships inside the bottle of my head and then like deconstructing them, moving them out in parts back to you so you can build that same ship inside the bottle of your head. And like that way of thinking informs all of my skill sets, UX design, visual design, then even language design, like it's all architecture. And it's like, it's emergent from the fact that the world out there is somewhat vague to me. It's a little bit less intense in terms of how I receive it. It's a little bit more muted out there, but it's quite loud in here. And it's like quite vivid as well. And to be able to relay that is like a constant effort. And I had to discover that that was my strength and domain. And it took me a while to be like, okay, with settling on strengths rather than trying to aspire towards everything that everyone else was doing. So, mm. yeah. So this muted outside world and this loud, sort of bright and vibrant inside world, you're navigating that without really, I would imagine, understanding that other people's minds were not working that way. There must have been a time, perhaps it was the time of your diagnosis, perhaps it was when you first tried LSD, but there must have been a time when you were like, oh, wait a minute, the way that I'm experiencing the world is quite different. And maybe you've seen other people behave differently, but actually understanding that qualitatively there's something different. Can you recall that moment when you kind of awoke to that? Yeah. And I mean, I've told this story 10 gajillion times now, but it's, it was, and it did have a lot to do with my first experiences with psychedelics. 
most especially, and I've used this, there's going to be way too many metaphors, but it's, it's, it's exactly that metaphor of like moving from the swimming pool and going to the hot tub and then being like, I was in a swimming pool. Did you know that there's temperature also like that comparison? All of a sudden I had contrast. I got outside of that norm and like how it's like the closest thing I could come to being like, I've never been you. I don't know what it looks like to be you. I don't even know what your color red looks like. I don't know anything, but like to step into that for a moment is an opportunity in the same way traveling to another country is like, Oh, our culture has really particular things. Like there is no normal, like travel the world enough. And you're like, there's no normal. What is what's like, it's that sort of confusion. But I had that in like a more, I didn't physically go anywhere. I just was transported to like a different seat in this sort of like auditorium of like perception. And so I got to understand what the seat that I was sitting in before. And that was with psychedelics and like, these psychedelics and they've changed my understandings, but they've also made me okay with how I communicate. Like right now you guys can't see what we're doing. We're on like a zoom call, but I'm looking off in another direction. I'm looking to the right side of the screen. Amon's probably looking at me, but like I still have to do that because it allows me to more efficiently recall information and construct sentences and all of that. And so it just became a point also where outside of being on psychedelics, it became more comfortable with just normalizing the fact that like, that's my communication style. Hi, this is how I talk. No, I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm paying attention. I'm just having to rebuild like those ships inside the bottle of my head. And if I'm looking at you, that's, we'll get into it if we want to, but it has to do with some of that like hyper intensity of connectivity within the autistic mind, which is that if I'm in, intaking a lot of stimulus, that's changing, that's going to overwhelm me. And then that's going to also interfere with my ability to put out information or to construct information and make sense of what's happening. And in a lot of my creative pursuits, I'm constantly like, eliminating one of my five senses in order to allow one of my expressive senses to like kind of have the bandwidth to be able to like go against what would otherwise be like that fire hose of information. It like frees up the pipe so I can put something out. Well, and the listener can't see me just beaming smiles at you. And (laughs) I love your poetry, you know, the ships in the bottle in your mind that must be taken apart and then reconstituted. So it's it's quite interesting because you're just gushing poetry with, you know, looking off to the corner of the screen, gesturing, and I'm like just staring at you beaming (laughs) because I love your words. So it's actually quite an interesting dynamic between the two of us. So the listener who is not, does not get a visual experience of us at the moment will get a, a reconstructed ship of experience through our words. You were just talking a little bit about hyperconnectivity in the autistic brain. And I think that this might be a nice segue to give just a little bit of the kind of foundational science as we understand it. I understand that autism presents in many different ways. And yet there's some underlying scientific understanding of what kinds of divergency is happening in the brain. And that also helps us understand why psychedelics might be potent as what you've dubbed a neurological contact lens. So I think just briefly, if we can talk a little bit about the neurology of autism. Sure. And this is something that I tread on really lightly. I like to try to center the work with the autistic psychedelic group as much as I can in terms of like community support and discovery of experiences, things like that. When I do have to speak to this, I I am quite well aware that there are people that have studied this quite extensively. I do not have any sort of neuroscience degree. I refer over often to a definition. And with your permission, I'd like to just read just the first paragraph of that definition that I lean on quite often. Yeah, that's great. 
So this is coming from an autistic PhD scholar, Dr. Nick Walker, and he set out to create a sort of updated definition um, that was sort of less pathologizing. And pardon me, I actually misgendered Dr. Walker. Dr. Walker goes by she. Um, And in this definition, I'd like to uh, read here. Um, It states, autism is a genetically based human neurological variant, the complex set of interrelated characteristics that distinguish autistic neurology from non-autistic neurology is not yet fully understood, but current evidence indicates that the central distinction is that autistic brains are characterized by particularly high levels of synaptic connectivity and responsiveness. This tends to make the autistic individual's subjective experience more intense and chaotic than that of non-autistic individuals. On both the sensory motor and cognitive levels, the autistic mind tends to register more information and the impact of each bit of information tends to be both stronger and less predictable. And I can like leave like a link for the show note or something if people want to go deeper on that. But she created that definition in order to have a sort of concise sort of paragraph level bit of information and to for people to broadly distribute and it's translated into a number of languages. And I can send you like the show link note for that later. So I want to I want to spend a little more time on your experience of your autism growing up. And I want to read a little bit from your book, Autism on LSD which I think, again, I, I, love, I love your way with words and kind of speaks to what I understand to be one of the tragedies that can happen when someone is mis-socialized according to their neurodivergency. Like we have a one-size-fits-all socialization model, which sucks. It's, it's basically like the education system and it creates a lot of trauma and harm. And many of us go through our lives trying to find community and connection and to socialize in ways that we can really be ourselves and really express ourselves. And this is common for so many people. And I think for people of various different kinds of neurodivergence, this can be a particularly challenging landscape to navigate. And so I'm going to just read a little piece from your book to kind of segue us into talking about the experience of community. So you write, I believe that my autistic awareness predisposed me to being especially blind to very particular aspects of experience, specifically sensory data crucial to social and emotional intuition, and in turn, the navigation of the social and emotional landscape of my life. And you'll go on to talk about how you would build these maps and routines so that you could predict and navigate social environments. And you say, but all too often, my maps and routines failed to serve me, outing me as a tone-deaf socializer, well-versed in the recommended chord progressions, but woefully incapable of hearing the backing rhythm, much less harmonizing with other instrumentalists in the jam sessions of social interaction. So what you're depicting here is, I think, a very strong version of something that many people listening can imagine feeling from time to time, not understanding the clues and and sort of running a script that they think works and then that moment of embarrassment when they don't know the right thing or they've been outed as not understanding. Now, your experience of that seems to be a much more extreme version, but I think all of us can connect with the panic of being exposed socially in the way that you've described. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of that goes back to 
you know, the, uh, there's kind of two parts to that puzzle. You can either seek out an accommodation, which is what you would receive in order to support that like unique sensory experience, or you can create that adaptation. And I touched on some of the ways that I've, you know, done that more recently, like seeking an accommodation, like, Hey, I'm going to be looking over here, but I'm going to be also paying attention. Don't worry. That's like, that's a creation of, you know, an accommodation as opposed to an adaptation. Whereas before I would sort of like endure the intense sensory experience of like more, more information coming at me, but the sort of offset for that adaptation. And I would almost more say that that's like me kind of like white knuckle surviving almost some of that sensory experience. The offset is that like, I will have a very short amount of time that I can process that level of information before I'll go through what some autistics might refer to as like a, a burnout, a meltdown, a overwhelm, any of these things. And it's very much the same sort of, you know, way. Some For some people that's, you know, fluorescent lighting for long enough or a subtle hum or any of these things. Or I think any person, even like the most extroverted person can relate to, you know, getting off uh, work at the end of the day and being kind of overwhelmed with incoming emails, notifications, everything, and like having a comfort of having that recovery time. So, you know, in terms of how I approach that in my life, it's just a combination of those two and another kind of more subtle version of like an adaptation that I still do now. It just happens to be helpful at times is like, I will still kind of like lecture or if I'm controlling the output of the information, then I can also simultaneously control like what's coming at me. I think that's a confusion point for people because they're like, that person doesn't even seem that autistic. They're like talking, look at them, they're talking. And like, the thing is like, that's, that's not really my, that's one of my stronger points, like putting stuff out, doing things outwardly is totally fine. It's that like feedback looping and doing that in larger, more high sensory intense spaces. So again, it's all like contextual in the same way that like, if you were driving straight into a sunset and you didn't have your sunglasses, you'd be like way worse at driving. But like, if you have sunglasses, great, you're doing better. And like, that's where like psychedelics kind of helped me in that regard. And if you instead have like a sun visor or like you decide to turn right and just drive like in a zigzag pattern and kind of look at the sun for a little bit and then drive the next corner and look at the sun for a little, like there's ways to just like, it's when I was absolutely going upstream and I didn't even know that that was upstream. That was when it was the most exhausting. And I think that's the hardest part for like parents or anyone who's like a younger autistic. They're like, they don't know that like, that's the, that's like the debilitating mode. Like I talked to a parent one time and she was like, my kid always, he always like, he can't handle birthday parties. It's only birthday parties. It's not the other parties though. And I was like, what, but like, and it's, it's like almost becomes like a superstition when you're trying to interpret, like, what is the experience for that person? Because at a certain point in your life, you don't have the ability to articulate what's making you tired, what, what's agitating you. And the interpretations coming from someone else who might have a totally different sensory experience. It's like, it's on par with trying to like decode why animals are behaving a certain way. And like, I, I'm an autistic person. I'm not trying to say like autistic people are, well, humans are animals. Either way, the point is like, it's a different sensory experience. We all have those. And so it's like, it's taking that extra moment to be like, what's the view like from like outside of like your sort of like cosmic window? Like, what is it? What's your experience of the world like? And when you're younger, you don't often have that insight. You don't really have any contrast. You haven't really articulated inner worlds really much. And in the culture I was raised in, at least, there isn't a lot of attention. Like I didn't have gym class, like inner 
monitoring meditation gym class or something. It was like, it was very outward experience and the outside world was like the more intense one. So I'll just take pause because my mental timer says I should take pause. But what, what do you think about any of that? Well, it's a great segue, but first of all, what do you mean your mental timer says to take pause? What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. At one point, I I like tried to set like a five minute alarm to just like sort of at least check in on the on these things to be like, all right, I should probably make sure that there's a you know because normally I think like there's a look at there's like there's research about this stuff as far as like how many how many like seconds to minutes pass by in like a, a quote like an average exchange and like what is like the common like rate of like back and forth and like a certain kind of like social engagement. So I try to still like adhere to those because you're going to be able to add new information to me. Like I still enjoy listening. I have many things like part of what's a challenge with some of this stuff is that like in order to explain like a kernel of this, I need to like triangulate it with so many other points of like things you might've never experienced or lived. So I have to like build each of those all at once. So it just takes a while to like get the point of what I'm trying to get across. So that's what I meant by mental timers. That was another mental timer but, going off. <laughs> I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who have no mental timer whatsoever, <laughs> like, who just go and go and go. But you're, but you know, you're great. I think there's an interesting aspect of self awareness to all of the work that you've done and all the processes that you've that you've been through. Some of these tools were adaptations that now, as an increasingly public figure, actually serve you well. So you're currently on a podcast. And you have the awareness to know that for a podcast listener, they want the back and forth. They want the deepening exchange between the two of us. If they wanted a single monologue, they'd be in a they'd be in a different format. They'd be looking at a TED talk or something like that. So that so these tools are serving you well as you continue to grow and navigate through your life, as I see it. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, part of what we've also seen through this book too is that a lot of, not not everyone, but it becomes hard to parse out. For some people in this book, they were writing about some of their psychedelic experiences or breakthroughs or new awarenesses that came about when they were younger. And I think it's just quite easier to sort of see that as like a sort of like uh, the top of the hill of some progress of sorts or something like you, you can kind of start to be like, well, before that, I can clearly see that that's how this was. It creates such a sharp point of contrast that it's quite easy sometimes. And it's hard to really separate that out. And that's where like qualitative surveys and stuff will do this much better than just some stories will be like, did your behavior change or did your like relationship to your behavior change? Like, or does there even really necessarily like a, that much of a difference between those two? Like, I'm reminded of like that recent like placebo study of like that was showing how like microdosing was like synonymous or like comparable to like placebo outcomes. And like the notion that like, placebos are still quite impactful as it is. Someone's self-belief can be a very motivating and powerful outcome. And so like in these same ways, like, you know, I've gained this mental timer, yes, but I've also just, I'm presently 34. So at that same point, like I've lived some time to be able to have some wisdom into some of these things as well. Like there's a natural growth arc I'm on also, and I'm keep being on, but I do still give a nod to some of the psychedelic insights for, for catalyzing some of those learning moments in a way that was much more immediate than might've been by just like being told through direct instruction, why these things might matter. Yeah. A few moments ago, you were talking about how you didn't grow up with an internal emotional gym class. You weren't educated in certain aspects of relating to yourself. I think that's a pretty universal experience that we got 
we got gym class, but you know, we didn't get to learn these things. You, you wrote about how after your first dose of LSD, you connected with this deep empathy, you, this arresting empathy. And afterwards, you wrote that you felt like it unclogged a lifetime of emotional constipation. And there you were, sifting through your mound of unprocessed mental shit. And this, is, this was part of your book that was really, really interesting to me because, and I think so common with lots of people's experience with psychedelics, is that you kind of make your way through life. There's things that are adaptations, there's ways that you're responding maybe to trauma, maybe to an environment that's toxic or unhealthy. And you can't see that these things are confining factors you've just adapted within them. And then the psychedelic kind of opens that up and things start to move and suddenly you start to really begin to feel into your body into places maybe you didn't feel. There's an interoception that starts to happen. And I think with you, with the way that you think about these things and kind of the way that your mind approaches these things, you you have a very articulate way of describing that process. And I think you probably have some really poignant tools for that process. And again, I think that that process is common across the spectrum of anyone using psychedelics for any type of healing or growth or self-understanding. Yeah, for sure. And to, you know, kind of move from the beginning of your feedback there all the way to sort of the lead into what you were saying there, I did want to double back really quickly onto that sort of like absence of sort of mental gym class sort of comment of, I do think it's also worth important or worth pointing out rather that that wasn't maybe present in my school system. I think maybe there was like some suspicion that that like that like borders on like almost like a religious structure or something. If you're doing meditation, I think that mindset has changed like general mindfulness. I think it's been integrated into like, like education programs more broadly over time. And I did have the incredible benefit of still having that within my family structure, like my sort of like the family crust, if we had one would sort of just be like my parents always instilled in us that like, as long as we were like happy and healthy and self-sustaining in whatever ways we needed to be, like that was like sort of the guiding sort of like trio of like where we were moving towards. The problem in my instance was that like I had been taught happiness through essentially like pop cultural influences, I think like a lot of people and chasing those versions of happiness wasn't eliciting what I've now come to be know to be like more internal, like visceral, like states of elation. And so I was like chasing the markers of happiness, like the presentation of happiness, but I wasn't engaging in the happiness that comes almost from like the cease of the pursuit of it, of like the letting in of the, the joy that's like present. And that I think, again, is I think a very almost like unavoidable lesson in certain kinds of body practices, psychedelic practices, things like that. And so when it came to kind of going through that sort of like, ah, oh, man, what haven't I dealt with? It was like a ton of stuff. And I've been talking about this too much, but I I'd also had some engagements um, with utilizing like MDMA to process some things. And I remember very distinctly during one session, I had this moment where I relived like a younger point in my life and like a lot of autistics, I was sort of like bullied in certain ways or things like this because I just generally didn't know what was happening. And I was just like, I don't know what's really going on. And I don't know. It was just like, it was easy to run circles around me. But either way, like through no real direct kind of like provocation, I got to this point in some MDMA session where I just like was recalling back to like early life memories. And I went back to this point of being at the other opposite end of like receiving like some sort of like physical like violence towards me. And during that time, I like almost uh, there's a term called like metacognition in sort of psychedelic circles, the idea of sort of like looking at how you're looking at 
how you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And I had this sort of like intuitive sense as I relived that sort of experience that I would, I had like sort of leapt into almost like a side door of my mind. And that was like the place where like the, the hurt couldn't reach me or something. And I'm, don't worry everyone out there. Like, I'm fine. I wasn't like, everything's fine. There was not, this is not like to me, this, I don't perceive this to be like some like abuse or something like this. It was just like kids being kids and everything kind of happening when I was younger. But I distinctly remember going through that moment and being like, I need to not experience what I'm experiencing. And I remember like in my mind, I basically like went to that mental like trap door in my mind, closed that door. And I feel like that state of general disassociation like persisted uh, for a long time up until some of these kind of psychedelic experiences were kind of like, you can walk out of that door. It's cool. And like with that came the allowance of any different kind of experience that might come through too. So there's like all that kind of laundry that piled up outside the door was just waiting there for me. All those like other feelings, pains, all those other things, because it was like, I had closed that feedback loop. I had like, you know, like just kind of a classic kind of trauma response and we can go kind of deeper on it, but like a thing that I I'm starting to perceive after listening to some hundreds of people with autism and things is that because of these sensitivities, you know, we might just have a lower threshold for how we enter into what resembles like a a sort of trauma-like state. I think like, obviously we know things like, you know, people coming back from war, that's obvious trauma. Like these are very serious things, like very high level. I just, I have these experiences where like at lower kind of, uh, you know, like I wasn't in a war, but like the, the exposure to simple, like kind of bullying or the exposure to like high intensity sensory settings, things like that. It, it becomes, you know, there's like a, I maybe have like a certain kind of proneness to having more of like a, like a response in that regard. And I've, it's just been kind of, I've seen that patterning in so many other autistics. And again, they're also coming to me on the other side of some psychedelic healings. So the odds are there's a, some bias there that that's why I seem to be meeting more autistics with trauma and things like this. But seeing that pattern and not just autistics, but like just about like any other variation they're in, like there's a certain amount, like the more, the more difficult it is to navigate an immediate space, the more kind of likely it might be that you might encounter those, you know, that those feelings of shame or regret or, or painfulness that might kind of make you less inclined to try, try again kind of thing. So the trapdoor that you're talking about, where you stepped to a place where you couldn't be harmed, where you were safe, the experience of LSD helped you open up that door. Was it, was it kind of like a binary thing where you took LSD for the first time and the door opened? Or was it something where like over the course of your different experiments with microdosing over time as you explored using this this substance to explore your consciousness, was it that what had been behind the door sort of gradually seeped out and allowed you to begin to process it? Or was it a sort of all at once overwhelming kind of experience? At a certain point, it becomes really hard to parse out in the same way that, you know, I was, I was I, from time to time, I'll, I'll look at qualitative surveys just to see how they're constructed or things like this. And I took one the other day and was asking me, like, pick the most important psychedelic experience of your life and like, talk about that. And like, obviously it's like, oh, it must be that first one or whatever. But like, I think that there, for the time being, there's like a scarcity of these experiences as far as access goes and things like this. You know, like, you know, someone who can't travel quite so often might have that one special vacation or different things. And I just happen to have a, a good deal of experiences with psychedelics of varying ranges over the years. And I think because of that, 
there definitely came a point where I was just like, I'm certainly not learning all as much as I once was because initially there was a lot more learning session over session for the simple and obvious reason of like, you know, this is so new. There's so much territory to unpack that became less and less over time. But nonetheless, like, you know, there's still a utility and kind of checking back in every so often. I think it's like our, our minds have this way of, and I think it's also like fit for our, you know, well-being, have this way of, you know, building up some of these conditioning maps because it's like, if you do A, then B, then C, that gets D, good job. Keep doing that pattern, keep that pattern. And like some of these patterns are exceptional, like keep the patterns that work. But if you keep repeating some of those patterns, like in the same way, if you like move a Roomba vacuum to the next room and it does the same pattern, it's going to like keep hitting the wall over and over. And if it doesn't like adapt, then that's where I think psychedelics were helpful because they seem to like reopen that like kind of critical learning window for me to sort of reconsider those patterns, notice new options and kind of make an inventory. Like, what are my patterns? What will I keep? What will I like not persist in and like having those check-ins, which again can come through conventional like therapies and things like this. I just had an easier time getting down to that level of like metacognition with the, with the influence of psychedelics. So as I understand it, you experienced LSD, you had kind of an aha moment of like, wow, okay, my brain can function very differently. This is very interesting. And then you proceeded on a, a long series of experimentation with different doses, with different times, and with different contexts. I'm curious, was that mainly LSD or did you try other psychedelics as well during that time? So at that time, I was mainly utilizing LSD. And that was mainly because I could make that the most consistent. And I happened to just have access in that uh, regard to being able to maintain that consistency. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there like, people who know psychedelics quite well would be like, that's quite a bit. Like that's quite a bit like to do anything of this sort quite regularly seems like quite a bit. And you know, the dose ranges that I was taking were, were significantly lower than like what people might use as a recreational or even a therapeutic dose. And so there's a degree to where like, if one was to compare this to say like, I don't know, an SSRI or, or something like this, there was like a regularity with checking in, but there wasn't an aspiration towards like, you know, staying in a certain state. Uh, the tolerance profile of something like LSD would not kind of permit something like that to, to take place. And it's also quite inadvisable to try to do such a thing. But being able to access like these, like, again, what I refer to as sort of like, I would call them like immersion level kind of dosages. I've also heard people refer to them as like threshold dosages, things like this. They were slightly above like the conventional microdose range because of some of the things that I was discussing uh, with you earlier, as far as like navigating some of that you know, sensory information. And the more succinct answer is like, I have had, as I mentioned earlier, like I've had experiences also with MDMA, which is quite a different drug with, which has, you know, quite a different like neurotoxicity profile and like using that very infrequently throughout, throughout these years. But similarly, like with psilocybin as well, like I had some like equally as uh, in, insightful experiences there. I just attended towards LSD for just circumstance really. And I think that, you know, it's, there's so much more to come still yet as far as uh, being able to assess the, you know, the pros and cons of any of these things and like the, you know, so much more to be learned. So yeah, that's my long-winded kind of answer in regards to some of that. Have you ever done ayahuasca? I have not. I have not. And I think that goes back to, again, just points of access. I had not traveled to anywhere where there were points for like legal access in that regard. And I would be curious to explore that. It's also quite different in the sense that a lot of my learning 
was taking place in um, less of like an internal or say like quote like visionary state a lot of it was more so engaged with the rational material plane or something like the the world out there and so i think in that same regard it would be something that would be uh, quite insightful but it's just something i just never had engaged with previously a lot of what you were doing was you were taking small doses of LSD and then putting yourself in social situations that otherwise would have been overwhelming. And so in this way, you were very much behaving like a psychonaut, like truly self-experimenting with this medicine. Do you have any funny stories? <laughs> do, you, do you have any like, I mean, I know you talk a lot about this. So is there anyone where you're like, well, the one time that is it, is that, am I barking no. up the wrong tree on that one? I mean, well, there's certainly like, you know, there were times in which, especially in the early days, I think it's like if the other day there was an interview that they, they started off with, they read a portion of Albert Hoffman's book, LSD, My Problem Child. And his first experience, he took, I think, like uh, 250 micrograms or something in his first experience. And he was literally the first human being to ever undergo that experience. So he had no concept of like what was going to happen or not, like no preparation, like no anything. And as you read through his account, it's like, it's like nightmarish, like almost like aspects of it. And I was like fortunate enough to at least have like the support of others, like at least to have like some like glimpse of what was, you know, upcoming. And I, I maintained that same kind of, I had like a, an incredibly like soft container for all of this time. I was quite aware because my first experience was with like a higher dose experience. I was quite aware of like how kind of quote, I don't know, odd things might get or, you know, how I, I mentioned that same thing in the first book about like, you know, that that sort of there's a line, something like one of the most challenging aspects sometimes was like, I would be quite pleased just to like stare at like a, a dewdrop leaf in the sunlight. And I'd be like, I should probably do something though. Like at, at those certain higher ranges, I'd just be like so blissfully content to just like exist and be and like just whatever that it's like there's a certain amount of like you have to be able to like still keep the feedback loop going within like keeping your like life on track like participating meaningfully in civilization communities society friends family all these things and so you know as far as like you know, funny stories. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things that would be like humorous within my own like immediate experience to me, but like most of it was like such a, there's a point also where a lot of this work, I, I basically involved the people at those, at that time, I involved as many people as I needed to let know in order for myself to remain safe, in order for myself to remain comfortable. But there's a certain point where like if you inform someone that you have like taken a substance and they don't know anything about that, they immediately start acting the weirdest way possible, which is not good for someone who's <laughs> on, like they're not like it doesn't help the person who's under the influence of a substance to have someone acting even weirder than like the person on the substance. Then you're like, uh, like I don't maybe I shouldn't have told you anything. So like that's that's another like kind of outcome that like I had to kind of balance. But it, that's like that's just how we see things. Like we don't we have this culture where we're not transparent with each other. It's like all this like pathologizing, like how many people in your office place conventional medicine this morning in order to go and be functional at their job? Like how many people like have to only communicate that in very narrow lines because they might be judged for having to need some sort of chemical support in order to get their work done. Like it's just, it's a, we have an odd relationship with substances, certain ones versus other ones. And so I think that there is a reality where some of these things can result in some quite strange and interesting experiences. I think that like there's 
an abundance of those stories. And I try to just really speak to like how seriously critical some of these things have been to me. And like, maybe like when I'm like 75 years old, I'll tell you some good ones, but like till then, like I just, I have to just like really gravitate towards like the just deep, meaningful nature of these experiences. So that's, that's where I safely couch my answer for the time being. Okay. So Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions was released in 2019. And you end this book kind of musing on the idea of LSD being not in any way a cure of ASD because you had been explicitly learning, I think, in your journey that it's, that there were so many benefits of the way that your neurodiverse mind approaches the world, but that it had helped you understand and in a way kind of toggle between certain views of the world. You came to a point at the end of the book, which is basically like, would there be a time when LSD would not be necessary? And you wrote, is LSD the boat that takes me across the sea of social confusion only then to be discarded because the LSD is no longer necessary? Or is LSD more like a unique and irreplaceable boat that keeps me afloat in the forever overwhelming seas of perception as an autistic individual? So you published that two years ago. Where are you at with that question now? Well, a lot of it is just in the interest, again, of the landscape we live in, the legal landscape, and also really just like anything, you know, I've made a pivot towards accommodation over the reliance upon any sort of like medication regimen and that. But I do give a nod to the people out there who, you know, something and like another another kind of class would be like another class of drugs would be, you know, something like people who use like cannabinoid for pain management. And this notion that someone who's using like CBD oil for pain management is therefore like, you know, not, you know, dealing with that pain or like the physical therapy around that pain, that is for that person and like their like cannabis trained clinician to determine. And like that judgment is not mine either. Presently, I'm still subject to the judgment that is placed upon a substance that is mainly illegal just about everywhere in the world. And so for my own safeties in that, like I had like kind of set that down some time ago. And part of why I put that chapter in at the end of the book, because I was like a late addition to the book was because I started to get messages from people who are like aspiring to, it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation of like aspiring to like almost lose their identity, like so much wanting to uh, experience the world through such a radically different lens that they might be losing some some part of their identity. And it's so complicated that when we use just the label level of it, we're going to make a bunch of people upset because it's just, that's how words are. And that's how especially autism is because, you know, I sat down and I tried to like write and rewrite answers to these questions. I read Dr. Walker's response earlier because his answer leaves off with like, it's not fully known. It presents in a variety of ways. It's perhaps rooted in this, but to say like, it's, it's easier to at least be like, this is a potential root. Then this is like the fruit of that, by which I would say whatever I would might stereotype as my own behaviors are not going to be cross applicable. So in terms of relying or not relying upon these drugs. I think that in a in an amazing new world that we're quickly moving towards, if there was access, most especially even just for ADHD in that, like there's an especially wonderful ability to engage meaningfully in tasks and remain on like focused on tasks and like 
also have that simultaneous interoception to be like, mm, how do I feel about this task? Also, like, how hungry am I? How tired am I? Like, all of those interoceptive cues become stronger under these lower doses of psychedelics. And so, like, if I lived in a world where that was accessible, of course, like, I might consider that. But there's also been like longitudinal studies on people that just do like months and months of mindfulness training or who live a lifestyle in which they're engaging their body and their work more than they're sitting at a computer. And those same changes come about. So we're like, we're always making compromises. And like, you know, if I live 60 hours a week on a computer and I can't be moving about as much, like some of these things can be a supplemental to kickstart some of that like somatic work that might not happen. But might I be better maybe just kind of developing a structure or a lifestyle wherein those hours of work are spaced out with movement, with more, more things like this. So it's always that balance. So you know, it's the same amount of person who uses caffeine to drive another four hours on their shift is quite familiar with how like certain substances, like you don't even have the luxury to judge the use of a substance if it's allowing you to feed yourself or shelter yourself or make an income or do any of these things. And so that's a long-winded response, but I would love to see a shift. And I think we will towards at least like psilocybin in some amount of years where that's more normalized. Like the, there's like the SB 519 bill that might allow for cultivation in California at the end of this year, if it goes through many more stages, but at least then you could cultivate, at least then you could just simply like, like hello, I possess a, like a fungus that, that gets grown in my home. I use this for my cluster headaches, for my pain management and no one like just the end like the whole the whole like long-winded thing can just kind of come to a close you can just kind of be like okay there's the thing that grows you have the thing okay cool like we don't have to it could the whole drama of it all could just kind of like quietly fizzle out and people can just be like cool i have this medicine that was cool okay cool like and that would just kind of be it like this whole like the power dynamic struggle would kind of like calm down and just be like we could just kind of do that I think we are definitely on our way there. I mean, I don't think we quite have our Waterloo moment, but I think the war on drugs is certainly being won by drugs. So you know, this is this is very much changing, and these medications, these medicines, pardon me, are becoming increasingly accessible to people. And you know, something I'm struck by, Aaron, is how applicable everything that you're saying is to many, many, many people. And people who would not identify as neurodivergent in any way would recognize a lot of what you're experiencing and a lot of the value that you found utilizing these medicines. And not just the medicines themselves, but like how you've used them as tools to find a deeper understanding. And to me, this is a great segue into kind of the final aspect of this conversation that I wanted to have with you, which is this idea of community. In the book, Autism on Acid, you started by talking about how you were trying to learn the humans. You were trying to memorize the humans. You were trying to figure out how the humans worked. And your ability to socialize was following certain scripts. And there was, a, there was this kind of disconnect. Now, if you follow this course of your work, this book, and then getting into Autistic Psychedelic, which is the community that you co-founded and is the foundation of this book that represents 40 different perspectives on uh, neurodivergent relationships to psychedelics. This is a powerful journey of finding, cultivating, and ultimately being in a powerful leadership role in community. And that journey, I think, is, is partially, as I see it from the outside and knowing you in the limited way that I do, 
partially kind of a hero's journey in your life of having these meaningful connections through peer support, through lifting other people up and following the course of how you grew and healed and learned so that you were best able to serve in this way. And I think it's really laudable and and quite remarkable the way that you've been able to build that in your life. The style of leadership that you are taking, which I also really appreciate and which I've observed, which is to kind of help raise other voices, to help show other perspectives. Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing first off is an acknowledgement of the incredible privilege and position that I am in to where I can live a life in which I can actually survive with my name public facing as someone who uses illegal drugs in my past. I can endure periods wherein I have enough opportunities through creative work or pre-standing connections in order to keep that work going. I have community of people who I can also lean upon if I go through some future period. I have a shifting culture that might take a new interest in some of these things. I have a family that I was able to talk to over the last couple of years about this quite openly. And that's not everyone's hand that they're dealt at all. Nowhere close at all, like ever at all. So many people come to our group and we're the first place where people can even talk about being autistic and feel okay, let alone anything that has to do with utilizing these drugs that are just misunderstood. And so I even every time you say leadership, I almost like flinch because I'm like, no, man, like this isn't. It isn't. I mean, like, I'm not the first person that went through this. Like, read this book. There's people 75 years old writing about doing this stuff decades ago. Like, there's people generations ago that were doing this stuff in every other culture before us that we owe so much more to first off. I know that, like, there's a positioning where it's like, hi, I'm like a co-organizer and I work in tandem with another person and and I, I put in a lot of time. I put in a lot of time to make this thing look through this like filter of like, look, here's our very professional looking thing. Like I happened to used to work in kind of like marketing world stuff. For some reason, we trust things that look like brands more than like anything else or something. It's like, oh, that's a brand. Like, ah, hmm, like, I don't know. There's like, there's a, there's like a psychology to that. And I put my energy into that because that's like the offering I have. Like here, I packaged this book. I wrote this thing here and I tried my best to push this through the filter of like making this as like broadly resonant as I could. I just don't want to be exclusionary and I don't really want to be oppositional either. I want to like invite people into this like very subtle thing, which is like, like right now, especially in the psychedelic world of like, you know, the quote industry or community and how those two are like having quite a, a tassel of a time right now. It's like, we're all on the sort of downhill run towards psychedelics being more integrated into our cultures. And if that's the case, we also have to understand the ways in which there can be, you know, points of like harmony in that dance. Like part of what we do in our group is we also have people who are like from like the medical world and the mental health world talking to people because right now, a lot of the people who have the most extensive experience in a lot of these things are people who perhaps didn't pursue those fields or the more likely also overlapping truth in 
some regard is that a lot of people in those fields of study cannot disclose their own usages in those fields of study. So that meaningful cross dialogue also isn't happening. So like more than anything, we just like open a room space and we give people the chance to talk. And we like when we have our meetings, some meetings, we go almost the whole meeting, just allowing everyone to introduce themselves. And by the time that happens, everyone pretty much like gets whatever out of it that they were like, just listening to a bunch of people just tell a little bit about themselves, their lives, their experiences with these things, they emerge with this sense of just being like, okay, because when I went through this, I didn't have a space like that until I went to like my first kind of psychedelic society kind of meeting. And I was like, hey, when I arrived then, I was like, I have something weird to talk about, or I'm going to tell you about this. And like, just having someone who's like, that's not weird. Tell me about it. Oh yeah. That's kind of like that thing that guy said the other day. And like, as soon as you hear that, then you're like, Oh, all right. Like, well then what do you think? And then like, you can start to process something rather than just like, like ruminating on it. And so that's all we're really doing is just listening. Like it's, it's remarkable what you can do when you just accept what someone's telling you. Like it's incredible what you can do. It doesn't mean you have to like completely take it as like a hundred percent fact. Like I'm going to base my whole reality on this. But if you allow that space to be formed, like you can learn like, and other people can learn just because you've allowed someone else to teach. And like, that's all we do. I barely really even talk that much during the meeting spaces. I just kind of like call on people and invite them in. So that's my that's my TED talk there, which I realize it's, it's ironic to lecture about listening, but that's my it's my lecture about listening. Aaron, I I respect that the word leadership might make you flinch, but everything you've just described is excellent leadership, and it's not the kind of leadership where you are at the front and everyone look at me because I'm the one who knows everybody follow me. That's not what it is at all. It's about leading by example. It's about being someone who can inspire others. And there's a real humility to the style of leadership that's most effective and that works the best, which is exactly what you've just described, is deep listening, facilitating the best in others, having the discernment to be present for other people and for the collective ahead of one's own desires. To me, that's what real leadership is. So maybe it's just, maybe the word's wrong and we just need a different word than leadership. But I think the important thing here is to acknowledge that what you have done in community and with others is extraordinarily helpful. It's, it's, It's a very helpful and important thing. So maybe instead of leader, we just say helper. I don't know what the word is that's gonna be most easiest to wear but would, it is a laudable position i would propose the language of like stewardship like to kind of co like co-steer like the ship of the project that people are like collaborating on because that's what it is that we're doing we're collaborating on discovering like that's the whole nature like this book is funding the apc discovery project and the discovery project is just a bunch of people talking in public even just anonymously sharing information, good, bad, otherwise, it's discovering the information that's already stored in the wisdom of the lived experiences that have already been played out and then capturing that and then being able to be like, oh, well, based on that, this is how we could do this safer or this is how we could repeat these kinds of outcomes. Again, it's just like, we've just been listening. This book, like there's like 40 stories in there, 40 perspectives. That's of like the many hundreds more that like weren't included here. And all of that is just like, that's just the people that discovered this one little thing. And 
even just being in this conversation, I only have relevance for like, because it's just like, I'm in like this little weird window of time. Like you even, you and I even meeting is because of just this like sort of like uniqueness for a moment. And ideally I just become like fastly irrelevant in a sea of other people that are like, yeah, me too. That's exactly, yeah, well, okay. That's not special anymore. Like, cool, move on. Like, I would love to be like overwhelmed by like a sea of people who are like, yes, okay, yeah. And it's just a matter of like, it's easy for me to like encourage people to be like, yes, let's have more open discussions about these things, but there's still very real penalties for these things, legal or otherwise, like people who are parents who cannot afford to like lose custody because they've disclosed cannabis use in a legal cannabis use state. Or like, you know, like there's all these still like artifacts of the old kind of structure that prevent this dialogue from coming forth meaningfully. And so like, I can't even believe we're having some of these discussions sometimes like over Zoom. We might as well be like in a public park and a loudspeaker. But that's the degree to which like I take this very seriously in terms of like this is a worthwhile exchange of energy. And that's also the degree to which these people are gaining like they're making that same trade-off. Like I'm in a public facing Zoom space, but I'm still talking about this because I believe in that that much. That's quite a powerful statement to make. Like that's that's not just something you casually think would be fun to do. I didn't just like just come up one day like, oh, I'm just gonna go tell everyone this. Like this was like five years of being like, this is gonna be the dumbest thing I've ever done. Like, and every other day I'm like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Every other day, you know, it's hard. But like the more people that have come forward and, and just stood there and been like, we're with this, like that's it. <laughs> you know, I sent the book to like my parents the other day and like, I was like, read this, make quadruple sure that like, this is the way that like these words want to be presented. Like I talk about them for like a page and they're like, they were proud of you. Like, this is great. Like, cause even them, like I've been talking to them for all these years and until they like looked and like read this thing front to back and they're like, Oh, that's why you kept going like that's like because not everyone could see it from where I was sitting no one has seen it from where I've been sitting and like all these other people now like the other contributors of the book have seen the book with one another and they're like that for some of them that's the first time beyond one or two or three people they've read some reflection of their lived experience somewhere else and like that's an incredible gift to give to someone to like to make them just simply feel less alone in in what they've undergone and so like yeah. Anyways, I do the thing I'm normally doing now where I kind of lose my my composure because it's like it's a serious thing, man. It's like my life. It's uh, it's a lot of people's lives that are that are wrapped up in this. So yeah, there's no need for composure here. This is not this is not a conversation that requires composure. I think that this is beautiful. I think it's beautiful how much this matters to you and how how wise of a steward you are being with these extraordinarily delicate perspectives that really haven't been heard. That's why this is so important. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, people make jokes about a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff. But like, you know, every week someone comes and says, you know, I just, people's like lives are, are saved by this stuff. And it doesn't take away the danger. It doesn't. There's risks, you know, there's, there's, there's things that have happened to people under the influence of these substances as well from lack of preparation, lack of knowledge, all sorts of things. So, you know, there's a great responsibility and like, that's where I left off with like the introduction to this book was the same thing of just like making the comparison to this 
this whole thing just being like fire and it just being, you know, everyone has this fear of these things coming out and being loose in the world. And I think that there's a great deal of utility in being able to have well-trained people working with these materials. I think definitely in this, in the space of, you know, the naivety of, of our present culture, there might not be as many people that are well-versed, but I think that we're cutting ourselves short if we don't give ourselves permission if, to be able to, you know, responsibly take on the task of being able to kind of be like the sort of carriers or keepers of that kind of flame. Because again, I go back to that notion of like, if we could allow for cultivation to spring forth, even just with psilocybin, people could just grow medicine for their communities very cheaply. A couple of people could be tasked with it. The couple of people could be like overseeing. And again, this is like a future model but it just it's it seems quite sustainable and accessible and we can trust each other with being able to guide each other in meaningful ways i don't i'm not saying that should happen exactly tomorrow i just think that if we if we don't entrust people with the ability to take care of one another we're like we're preventing ourselves from believing in our own personal abilities to be caretakers for one another. Like we're creating the myth that we think will happen by believing the myth will happen. And if we believe a different myth, then like perhaps we'll enact a different story. And like, that's, I'm not even arguing for one particular outcome in that regard. It's just like, if we can cultivate trust within ourselves or within our communities and, and trust that we can teach one another how to navigate these really admittedly complex territories. And if we work towards that at the speed of trust, at the speed that we can get it done, then perhaps we'll arrive to some more positive kind of feedback loops. So yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Aaron, that makes me think about chapter five from Autism on Acid, the chapter about acceptance, where you write, because as a result of my early LSD explorations, I likewise became my own best friend after a long period of self-rejection. When you talk about building trust, when you talk about, you know, as Ram Dass says, walking each other home, we're doing that with ourselves too, you know, and your journey of opening up what was behind the trap door and really feeling it and then taking that feeling that stewardship of your own feelings being your own best friend and then supporting others in the way that you're doing with the autistic psychedelic community is really remarkable and it's really really important yeah no i i appreciate you saying that and i it's it's a lived experience because Again, I think it really, people, you know, it's easy to think, right? Like psychedelics seem quite interesting to people who have or have not experienced them. It's like, oh, that's like the flashy neon sign on this whole thing. But like when people come through, the reason, like we can't just sit around just talking about like psychedelics all day. And we basically rarely do. Like in our group space, we're just like, what's it like kind of just dealing with your circumstance or like, what's it like, you know, being like the one person in a, in a larger group of people that has one particular way. And what's it like being in the space where many people are a slightly more similar to that experience and how much accommodation is really needed if we all have a shared 
problem that we're all working on. There was like published research recently where they they did what's called like interpersonal rapport ratings of like different neurotypes. So like neurotypical people interacting with neurotypical autistics, interacting with non-autistics, vice versa. And then they did self-reported ratings of those interactions and then like ratings from the outside across all those same neurotypes. And the, the results kind of came through. And again, this was with a particular subset of persons on the spectrum as well as other groups. So like, you're not going to get this result in every study, but it was just an interesting and novel insight that there was just like a same highly rated rapport between autistic people and observed by other non-autistic people between autistic people and in the same direction of like neurotypical interacting. And so like if we develop these certain adaptations and that like our sensory experience informs a certain kind of like language of navigating the world, if we're all speaking a relatively similar language, it's going to make sense that there's going to be a more immediate rapport. So I think like a further progression of this thing would be to like rethink like every kid that grew up with like an individualized education program. What if that kid was growing up with like going to like a neurodivergence academy? Like what if that was like the place to go to like cultivate the skillful and like sharpest edges of these things? Like what if we normalize that? rather than like whatever other messaging is going out right now. Like what if it's just like, congratulations, you just discovered your strength at a young point in your life. Like rather than like, oh, you can't do this. Let's get, let's try to make sure you can do this eventually. Like why not just go straight to like what can be done really well repeatedly. But that's, again, that's a shift away from standardization and homogenization and, and towards diversification. And that's that's what I would kind of keep pushing towards and that's what we kind of cultivate in our group space it's just like we just like literally like we we start the meetings with we don't there aren't necessarily like rules or just like agreements but it's like if you need to move around while you're talking awesome you need to turn your camera off while you're talking totally fine if you want to type the whole time that's totally fine if you want to like listen the whole time totally fine like whatever like accommodation need is needed it's there and we just provide it for each other because we a lot of us spent time in a in a lived experience where accommodations weren't always easy to receive. Um, so yeah, that's the end of my soapbox thing and my mental timer and also like my heart timer is like I'm tired. <laughs> um, so yeah. Well, I, I respect both your mental and your heart timer, and I think we are kind of coming to the close of our conversation today. One little thing about what you just said, though, that I want to reference here is just before we got on the call, you were talking about how you were just remarking about how many of your ambitions had come to fruition and how grateful you were, you know, that you'd really put your mind to some things that you wanted to see in the world. And with your first book and now this collection with the autistic psychedelic community, with your work, a lot of things have happened. And just when you were talking about that neurodivergent academy, I had this kind of like Charles Xavier X-Men vision of you, <laughs> you know, like maybe there's somewhere along the horizon, the construction of an actual space like that for young people. That might be, that might be part of your path. I mean, it, 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 it's happened in really small spaces and generally the access is, is an incredibly expensive access point for those kinds of spaces. But again, it's like if the most recent CDC numbers were something around like one in 45 persons in the US were autistic, like why if, if one in every classroom and a half is growing up as the outlier, 
why not just take one in every 45 classrooms and make those classrooms like synergized, you know, like that just makes sense to me anyway. Like it, like you can still cross pollinate those intelligence types as well. But like, I just, it just seems to be like a, a possible thing to, to look further into. And I acknowledge my own blind spot of not being aware of many probable examples of exactly what we're talking about being out there. And if someone out there is already running something like this, like get in touch with me or anyone, like I'd love to learn more. I've come across a couple examples, but I could always, always, always learn more about what's out there. Well, and, and to land this beautiful spaceship of our conversation today, let's talk about getting in touch with you, Aaron. Autistic Psychedelic comes out on May 1st. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, but you can get to that at www.autisticpsychedelic.com. Um, so that's one touch point into this world that we're describing. Aaron, if you can share with us, how can people who want to connect to these weekly Sunday meetings that you've been doing, how can people connect to you personally? I know that you, you're getting a lot of direct messages to the point that you've had to turn it off a little bit, so maybe there's a specific funnel to, to connect with you. But for those who've been inspired by our conversation, how can they connect with you and yeah, connect more I mean, with your work? The, the top easiest way is just, come through one of those Sunday meetings. They just, they happen every Sunday at, for the time being at 11 a.m. Pacific. So that's like seven o'clock London time, two o'clock like New York time. So it's like pretty much anyone from like California to Eastern Europe could stop through there. At the very least, we'll try to make space to at least like address your question during the course of like the meeting space, whether that's through typing or whatever it is. But that's kind of like, you know, almost like open office hours or something for me and my, my co-facilitator. But it's also like, if I can't answer your question, there's like a whole lot of other people there that probably can. And like, I'm not, again, like the smartest person in that room is the whole room working together because like anything that I've said today is just knowledge that other people gave me. Like, this isn't like, ah, oh, man, like I didn't like, I, I, I just... It's just all other people. Like I'm a, I am a walking like dust ball of knowledge from other people just throwing it at me. And so like, this isn't like, I'm not like the expert on this stuff. It's like, I think every single person who ever told me any random fact or thing, any person that I quoted today, like Dr. Walker's work, like any of these people, they have shaped any of these knowledge points. And so like, don't worry also about reaching out to me. Like you want to start your own thing, make your own neurodivergent space. You'll also learn from other neurodivergent people. It's like, it's a natural principle of like community building. Like want to learn how to build community online. I, we are, we literally gave a presentation on that last week and we have like a slide deck. I can show you how we architected it. Like using basically free tools. You can just start running your own meetings and like find other people like, anyone from anything that said it in the last um, interview I was on. It's like, if you're trying to work through any struggle, the internet allows you to find others going through that same struggle and build meaningful community and momentum towards whatever outcomes you're trying to build. And I've lived that experience. I've written open letters to the world and the world wrote me back with enthusiasm every time. And that's how this book came to be. And like, now it's just like exponential it just goes from here. Well, Aaron, I know how, how busy you are right now and how full your life is. And I'm so grateful for you giving me and the listeners of Life is a Festival all of your insights today and showing up and, and the enormous emotional and mental outpouring over the past hour and a half during our conversation. I, I'm personally very grateful and I know the people listening are too. So 
Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure yeah, to talk to I you again. I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. And yeah, I hope that, uh, yeah, I just I don't even hope, but I, I just thank you. I thank you, man. I thank you. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.